morning. Welcome again to Pacific Hope, and once again, happy Mother's Day. Um, being married now for almost seven years and expecting our fourth, I have such a greater appreciation for mothers, um, for what you do, and greater appreciation for what my mom did for me growing up. And So we are thankful for you. Uh, if all of you have not contacted your moms yet, be sure that's on the top of your to-do list for today. And uh, be sure to let them know um, your thanks and appreciation for them. I heard um, things are going well with John in Africa, with Pastor John. I heard he even had a chance to sit down with a converted witch doctor and listen to what the Lord has done in his heart. So I trust when he'll return, there'll be many other stories that he'll be able to uh, share with us. And just one more thing, um, last week we looked at a hard passage, and at best probably nothing popped up on your radar, but I went sort of long, and, and I sort of felt that going long, it wasn't the time that I wanted to spend kind of encouraging us, or sort of showing us how we take that passage, and how we can use that in our own walk perhaps. And, 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 and like I said, perhaps for most of you it's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but um, it was just something that was on my heart. Um, so maybe it was just a question of, kind of the timing of how I use that sermon and sort of the emphasis and, and that sort of thing. But um, hopefully it was nothing. But for someone, if it may have been a discouragement to you, please know that that wasn't the intent. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then what we'll do is we'll get into uh, this morning's message, uh, which will be out of Psalms. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the truth that lies within it. We thank you for the medicine that it is to our souls. We thank you, Father God, through it, you speak to us, you make yourself known to us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it serves to conform us to the image of Christ. I ask, Lord, that it would do that today for each and every one of us in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the arts, there is something called a soliloquy. And a soliloquy is a dramatic or a literary form of discourse in which a character speaks to him or herself. And it sort of reveals his or her thoughts without particularly addressing a listener. And um, in the span of the last few days, I, I was sort of struck by, by a different sort of soliloquy. Um, I work in downtown and I remember crossing an intersection and there was a man kind of coming towards me and we're going through the crosswalk and you could tell that probably didn't have much money and and you could just tell he started just getting angry and he started talking louder and louder and then he started using bad foul language and he started getting really aggressive towards himself and people were around and a little concerned as to how he might respond and what he might do and and he went on and it looked like it was just more of an internal battle that he had with himself and then the next day, I'm going across the same intersection, and now another man is walking before he gets to the intersection and drops to his knees and kind of looks up in the sky, pounds his chest, and then same thing, just starts kind of arguing with himself and talking real loud. And you can just tell he's greatly troubled. And then I'm having lunch with a friend at the train station there, and then behind us is this man, same thing, having a conversation with himself, just angry, using foul language just struggling and then as we're sitting there's another man walking on the other side and he's punching himself in the face and he's moving his lips you don't hear him but he's speaking and so as you look at that you realize there's a serious conversation of some sort going on in their head there you know there is a form of battle and struggle and argumentation that is happening in this person and usually when we talk about talking out loud or that sort of thing, it's, it's looked down upon. It's, it's sort of a negative. It's, I actually did a Google search. Talking to yourself out loud, the first link that popped up was a schizophrenia website. But we all do it. We all do it in one shape or form. We all speak to ourselves. And um, what's being said when we speak to ourselves reflects what's going inside What's going on inside of our hearts? What's going on inside of our minds? And you see it even in athletics. Athletes preparing for competition. 
NBA playoffs are around. You see how these talk to themselves. They get themselves pumped. Boxing bouts. Trying to get themselves ready. Entering combat. And it's important what you say to yourself. Because there are many others who are speaking to you. The world is speaking to you. There is a reason why there are so many billboards. There is a reason why there are so many radio advertisements. Why television is so popular. Internet, books, magazines. They are speaking to you. They are trying to convey a message to you. They are trying to convince you that you need this or that or what have you. But the Christian faith is also supposed to be marked by speaking to yourself. By speaking to yourself. Because we either listen to ourselves or we speak to ourselves. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has that famous line where we must preach to ourselves. We must do less of listening to ourselves, but doing more of speaking to ourselves. And I've taken that to, to heed a few times. If I'm depressed, burdened, weighed down, I'll go somewhere and I'll just start preaching to myself out loud. If I'm in the car, I'll put the earpiece on so I don't look quite crazy. If someone drives by, they just think he's just on the phone talking to someone. But we're called to do that. And the question is why, right? And I think one thing we want to realize is that our mind is a processor. It's not an independent operator. Our mind is only as good as what it's hinged to, what it's anchored to. It's not sort of an independent mechanism, but it is sort of like what you feed in it is what it puts out. And we know that our mind, because of the noetic effect, because of the, the, the sin condition that we live in, we drift, we gravitate towards lies, we gravitate towards doubt, we gravitate towards forgetfulness. And so there's a constant need for us to remember that we must speak ourselves, that we must preach the truth to ourselves. Romans 12 too, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the renewing of our mind by the truth of God's word. And today, the passage that we're going to look at shows David doing this very thing. David in this passage, in this psalm, is speaking to himself. He's understanding his own forgetfulness. He's understanding his human nature. And now he is reminding himself of the truth of who God is and what it means for him. He's remembering his need to worship God. He's remembering why he worships God. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at uh, why we worship God, and we're going to look at why we need to remind ourselves constantly to do so. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. Psalms chapter uh, 103. I'm sorry. Psalm 103. And this is what David writes. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses. He acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. So far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord lasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. 
Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obey the voice of the, his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now we're going to be looking at the first five verses. And just as a little bit of a background to the Psalter, uh, it's called the Praises in Hebrew. And it's sort of the God-breathed hymn book, if you will. Um, the backdrop is sort of a look of the acts of God in creation and history. And all the different phases and epics and periods that come into a person's life. The oldest psalm that we have was written in 1410 B.C. by Moses, Psalm 90. And then there are some that go to the post-exilic period, like Psalm 126. So there's a 900-year difference from when the first psalm was written to when the latest one was written. And one person puts it this way, The purpose of the psalms, without denying the earthly dimension, the people of God are to live joyfully, dependently, on the person and promises standing behind the heavenly eternal dimension. And as a result, psalms address so many of the different cycles that we go through in our lives. Everything from human trouble to triumphs, complaints to rejoicing, prayers to praises. It's all here. And it's all geared to spur us to live a life of godliness, to live a life that honors our Creator and our Savior. Now, this particular psalm is within the fourth book. The Psalter is divided into five books. This is in the fourth book. And it's in a little chunk, a little cluster of psalms that go from 102 to 106. And these all focus on certain traits of God, character traits of God. So, eternality of God is one. Love is another. Creating, sustaining power. Omnipotence. They all sort of focus on one of the characteristics of God and emphasize it. And in fact, Psalm 103 and 104 are a pair. And so that's what Mark read to us today with Psalm 104. And they kind of go together. And they're both designed to promote the exaltation of God in our hearts and in our lives. And so here, in these five verses, David is surveying God's goodness and is preaching to himself to bless God. And he is doing the same for us. He is exhorting us to do the same as well. Now, the first thing that he does is that he's going to tell us the who of why we worship God. The who. And this was probably written later in his life. So by now, David has known many victories and many defeats. He's known the slaying of Goliath, but he's also known the heartache of Bathsheba. And so now he sort of looks back on his life. And certainly all these things would have been in his heart as he thought back. And now he's focusing himself on who is his God and why he worships him. And so here in the first verse, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He's acknowledging and celebrating God's gracious attributes. The fact that God is intrinsically worthy of praise and specially suited to our frailties. That God is specially, specifically suited to address our frailties. And so he says, bless the Lord. He uses an imperative. He's commanding himself to bless the Lord. It's a self-command. It's a self-command that he uses here. And when he says bless, what we're talking about is a synonym for praise. Another way of saying praise. And here's something that was helpful for me to understand. When the Lord blesses us, he reviews our needs and responds to them. Now when we bless the Lord, we're reviewing his excellencies and we're responding to them. So that's what's happening here with David. And the source, the object of his affection, the object of his blessing is no other than God, the creator of the heavens and earth. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we speak of God, it's a synonymous way to speak of Christ as well. And so we're reminded that in Colossians 1, 15 and 17, we speak, uh, Paul speaks of Jesus and he says the same thing, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who he's addressing. That's who he's praising. And when we come together to praise, when we come together to worship God, whether it be corporately, whether it be individually, that's who it is. No other than God of the universe. And he says this, he goes on to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So what David is saying now, this isn't going to be something casual. This isn't going to be something flippant. This isn't going to be just mere verbal expression of something I want to say to God. Rather, he's saying, oh my soul, all that is within me. So when we talk about the soul in the Old Testament, we're talking about the mission control center of who we are. The deepest parts of what makes you who you are is your soul. It's your mind. It's your intellect. It's your entire being. And so David is saying, I will bless you, Lord, with my whole being, with my entire soul. In Psalm 25.1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I bring you my everything, my affections, my thoughts, all that I am, I bring it to you. And that's only fitting. That, that, that really is the response that we should have to God when we come to him. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus is pointing back to the Old Testament. And that's what David is saying here. I'm not only going to bless the Lord and worship him and praise him, but I'm going to do it with my whole being, with everything that I am. And then he sort of drives the point a little further. All that is within me. All that is within me. And when we speak of worship, it might be helpful to just recognize what we're trying to say there. Um, to ascribe worth or value to someone is what worship is. So when we say we're worshiping with someone or something, because that happens in our world, we're saying that we're ascribing worth or value to that particular person or thing. And the thing is this. It's not a question of whether or not you will worship God. It's a question of what will you be worshiping in its place if you're not worshiping God. Because God made us to worship. God made us to have a sense of awe when we look at the world around us. Have you ever noticed that animals don't sit, animals do amazing things and sort of have a sense of awe when they see a lion go eat an animal? They don't all sit back and go, wow, how do you do that? But us, on the other hand, we're made to worship. We're made to have a sense of awe. Think of sporting events. Think of the Olympics. How we'll flock to go see people do things that we can't do. And we'll just sit there. Wow, I can't believe he can jump so far. Run so fast. Hit so far. Pitch so fast. Whatever it might be. There's, there's, there's a sense in us where we are made to worship. And what happens is, is when it isn't directed to the right person, you find poor substitutes. You find idols. And what are they? For all sorts of things, right? Money. You begin to worship money. It begins to be the thing that drives you, the thing that woos you, the thing that gives you a sense of security, the thing that fulfills you. A girlfriend, a boyfriend, power, fame, or yourself. And so we want to remember that what David is doing is simply directing his worship into the right place, to God himself. And everyone else who doesn't do this, they're going to do it somewhere else. They're going to give it to someone. I mean, to put body paint on yourself, to get up at 4 in the morning, to go have a 6-hour tailgate in 31-degree weather in Kansas City to go see a football team play, there is a sense of worship happening in you. There is an expression of worship there. So here David is just making sure that it's towards God, describing worth and value to God. And it's an outward expression of an inward reality here. Again, this isn't just some words that he's using, but it's reflective of what's in his soul, what's in his mind, what, what comprises the basis for who he is. And for us, worship is to be a way of life, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And as believers, as the beloved, as the bride of Christ, that's what we're called to. And so David goes on to say, bless his holy name. He's basically using a parallelism, saying the same thing in a similar way to drive home the point. It's emphasis. It's emphasis that he's doing here. 
It's not a casual statement, but a concerted conviction that I need to give my praise, my worship, my adoration to God and bless Him for His excellencies. Now in verse 2, he goes on to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Again, he repeats, bless the Lord. Emphasis, it's being driven home. This is what I need to be doing, David. I, King David, need to be blessing my Lord. Six times in Psalm 103, he says this, bless the Lord. Constantly reminding himself of what it is that he is to be doing with his worship. Now he says, forget not all of his benefits. Now why would he say that? We have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to forget things. We have a tendency to forget even the things that God has done for us. Here's what one commentator said. There is nothing the soul of man is so prone to forget as to render thanks that are due, and more especially, thanks that are due to God. And the um, ever-eloquent Spurgeon puts it this way. Memory is very treacherous about the best things. By a strange perversity engendered by the fall, it treasures up the refuse of the past and permits priceless treasures to lie neglected. It is tenacious of grievances and holds benefits all too loosely. It needs spurring to its duty, though that duty ought to be its delight. So the very thing that should be our delight will at times seem like such a strain, such a struggle. Because there's something in our heart, right? We're corrupted. We're corrupted. And so there are certain things that don't come to us as easily as they should. And remembrance is one of those things. Consider the history of Israel. Consider God's faithfulness in delivering Israel from the hand of Pharaoh into the promised land and all that took place in between those 40 years in the wilderness. Time and time again, Israel forgot God's faithfulness. Time and time again, they began to grumble. They began to grow disobedient. And over 150 times, you'll read it in the Bible, don't forget. Don't forget. Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 8 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Moses here pens for us by the power of the Holy Spirit some things for us to consider. And and if you consider these 20 verses of chapter 8, it's all about remembering that the Lord is your God. It's all about remembering that the Lord is your God. And just look at the first four verses, for example. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way of the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. And then go down to verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And then he goes on. And this theme is there. This point is prevalent. Don't forget what the Lord your God has done for you. And if we're honest, don't we have a tendency to forget what the Lord our God has done for us? If I look back on my own life and I look back at all those periods where it was so burdensome, where it seemed so wearisome. I remember as we were going off to seminary, I had so many questions. How is this going to work out? How is God going to provide? All these different things. God was so gracious to us, so generous to us, so good to us. But if you had asked me to tell you exactly how it was going to be, how exactly it would work out, I couldn't have told you that. But yet we know that God is a faithful God. And that whatever God allows in your life, he will use it to sanctify you. But at the same time, he's a gracious, generous, loving God. And yet since that time, I think how many times I begin to doubt and forget again God's faithfulness. 
the promises that he will provide, the promises that he will sustain, the promises that he will give you the grace that you need at the moment that you need it. I remember a seminary student had a great line. He said, God never graces a thought, but he always graces you in the moment when you need it. And I think that it's so easy for us to forget that and to forget all his benefits. Robert Robinson has that famous song that we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And uh, some of the lyrics, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the glove. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, the, he, he writes this, but he also experienced that in his life. He would drift, he would wander from God in his life. And so we need to be mindful of that too, that we have a tendency to forget. And so we preach to ourselves. And so here in these first two verses, David is saying, preach to yourself, preach to God, the blessings of who he is, his excellencies. Now he gives us five reasons for why we worship God. He extols and specifies five reasons why he ascribes ultimate worth to the Lord God Almighty. And I think these are so precious. And I think the reason these are so precious um, is because this is the treasure we talked about last week. The man running in a dead sprint till he just falls to the ground, collapses in exhaustion as he goes with everything he has to dig with his hands and pull out this treasure and open it up. And when he looks in there, what does he see? Here it is for us. These are some of the priciest, most precious, most valuable things that we have as believers when we open up that treasure chest of salvation. And so these are the ones that he addresses. So look with me in verse 3, the first one that he gives us. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who forgives all your iniquity. Now when you think of the greatest human need, there are a number of things that people would put there. Food, your greatest need. You could probably only go for several weeks without eating before you die. Water, fundamental human need. You could only go a few days without it. Air, you could only go a few minutes without it. But truth be told, in the cosmic realm, and when we speak about eternity, forgiveness is even more precious and more valuable than any of those things. It is the greatest need of humanity. So it's no wonder that David here puts iniquity first. The fact that his Uh, that he forgives all your iniquity, it makes sense that it would be first on his list of what David is blessing the Lord for. This is the primary message of the gospel. This is the paramount promise of the gospel call. The forgiveness of your sins. The forgiveness of my sins. This is redemption, penal substitution, atonement, the shedding of blood, all these theological terms that we use. It all points to this. Having your sins forgiven. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. Psalm 49.14 and 15 Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Salah. So forgive the pardoning of your sin. The pardoning of my sin. And it's a verb, and the way the verb is constructed is that the Lord's forgiveness of our sin is a continuous action that takes place completely at a particular moment. All your sins are forgiven. It took place at one moment, but it continues into the future. It continues for your entire life. But it took place in one moment when he forgave you. Because don't we continue to sin? And he continues to forgive. We fall short, he covers us. We stumble, he picks us up. We confess, he forgives us. 
And it's in the present. It happens now. It happens when you put your faith and trust in Christ. That's what happened the moment each one of us came to Christ and believed and fell on our faces before him. Your iniquity were forgiven. Your sins were forgiven. And notice what he does here. He specifies it. All. All your iniquity were forgiven. Not some. Not A, B, C, but we're going to skip F because that's a really huge one. You're going to have to work for that one for a while and maybe land yourself in a place called purgatory and then you can go to heaven. No. All your sins have been forgiven. And your iniquity, that's what he's talking about, sin. Anything that's crooked, anything that's wrong, anything that is guilty behavior, Grudem puts it this way, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And the thing that we want to be mindful of is this. It's not that we committed a sin so we became a sinner. It's that by nature we were born sinners so we commit sins. Jeremiah 17.9, right? The heart, terminally ill, irreparably ill. That's what Jeremiah says. And 500 times you'll find the word sin in the scriptures. This ever-present reality that must be dealt with. And so the first thing David does is he stops and praises God because his sin has been forgiven. All of his sin was forgiven. That means the whole ordeal and mess with Bathsheba, forgiven. Forgiven. No sin is too great for God to forgive. Romans 5, 12 and 13. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now when you speak to someone who doesn't know Christ, someone whose eyes haven't been opened, this doesn't bode well when you tell them they're sinners. I have a coworker that I've enjoyed to get to know over the last several months. Very bright, very sharp young man. But he doesn't believe that there is a such thing as evil. He doesn't. He believes that what happens is that everybody acts in their best interests and everybody, before they decide to do something or not do something, you're simply weighing the opportunity cost ratio, the benefit cost ratio. And so everything is fueled by that. So there's no such thing as outright evil or outright good, but everything is merely a product of you doing a benefit analysis. And if it's worth it, you do it. If it's not, you don't. But you know, what he is saying isn't that uncommon. The things that he says aren't that rare. Steve Turner wrote a very interesting poem, and I wanted to read it to you because I think it really captures the essence of the world that we live in as it pertains to sin. This is what he says. We today believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good teacher, although we think his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. I thought that was... It's sort of a satire, right? He's being sarcastic here. We believe that after death comes the nothing because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death isn't dead, if death isn't the end, and if, dead, and if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, except Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What is selected is average. What's average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe that there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. 
This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. And conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man should find the truth that is right for him and reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except for the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear a state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. And so what Steve Turner does in a very poetic way is to say, if there is no sin, then you're God. And the God that you think you are is a very poor God because the reality of the world around you bodes of anything but holiness, but anything goodness. It's the whole therapy of sin. It's the whole denial of sin. John MacArthur wrote a book called The Vanishing Conscience where he talks about this, where a man goes to break into a house and he tries to get through the roof. The roof collapses. He falls into the living room. He sues the owner of the house for a faulty roof and wins. Things like that. Things like that. And more and more people are beginning to just question whether even sin is a reality. And the dangerous thing is, is when that enters the Christian church. That's when it becomes real dangerous. It's one thing when a non-believer says it. It's one thing when the writers and shakers and movers of our time say it. But it's another thing when like, someone like Rob Bell puts out a book called Love Wins. Because what he's saying there basically is this. He's, he's, he's pointing you towards a universalism. Where in the end, yeah, there may be evil. Yeah, there may be suffering. Yeah, there may be bad stuff going on. But in the end, love wins. And quite frankly, I believe everyone's going. So John Piper tweeted him, or whatever they do. They have all these different ways of communicating. And he simply said, farewell, Rob Bell. And it's our human disposition to doubt the reality of sin, to doubt the reality of evil. Even as believers, I find myself struggling with the fact that there is a real hell awaiting anybody who doesn't know Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I think when people act on it, they're just acting to what's sort of innate in all of us, apart from the grace and the Holy Spirit working in us. C.S. Lewis said, if there was one doctrine I could get rid of, it'd be hell. But I can't. It's right there. So clear, so evident. And here's the thing. If there is no sin, then there's no need for the Savior. And if there's no need for the Savior, everyone makes it, and Christianity is not needed. All of Christianity is predicated on the fact that there's a problem, but there's a solution. And David knew the solution. David experienced the forgiveness of God. And so the first thing that he does is as he praises God, he worships him for the fact that all of his sins have been forgiven. All of our sins have been forgiven. And if you look at verse 12 in Psalm 103, he says that he takes our sin as far as the east is from the west. How do you measure that? The east is from the west. When God forgives you of your sin, it is immeasurable. It is gone. You are not to do penance. You are not to sit and lament and loathe for a period of time until you think now you're ready to go on, that you've sort of done your due diligence and suffering for your sin. No, at the moment you confess, he is righteous, he is just, and he cleanses you of all your wickedness. All of it. And it's something that only God can do. In Mark chapter 2, when the paralytic comes and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And, every, you know, and all the Pharisees and all the religious leaders start going, you know, getting very angry with him and frustrated. You know, who do you think you are saying your sins are forgiven? So Jesus there, always using his miracles to substantiate who he is, says, pick up your mat and go home. And know this, fellas. You've got the power and the authority to not only have him pick up his mat and go home, but to go home forgiven. Because he's God. He's the one who forgives. So the thing I would say there is this. Let us never graduate the gospel. Let's never think that we've gotten to the point where we don't need to realize and dwell on and meditate on the fact that all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. 
Because it all starts there. We've been forgiven. All of our iniquity has been cleansed. As far as the east is from the west. Wow. Just meditating on that. Just pondering the reality of that. That your guilt and the condemnation that you were due has been lifted and was placed on Jesus Christ. And he bore the wrath in our place. So the gospel, this realization of forgiveness should be the lifeblood of all that we do. Now the second reason to remember for why you worship God, he heals all your diseases. David preaching to himself, blessing the Lord says, the one who heals all your diseases. Now there's two views on this. Some say this is sort of a parallelism of the first point, that there's the sickness of sin, and so he heals all your diseases. The other view is that he's the one who heals all your diseases. Ultimately, Jesus is the divine physician. And I think both are true. I'm not so sure that it has to be either one or the other that David is speaking of in this verse. Because we know that Jesus heals all of our spiritual diseases. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 to 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The divine physician came to heal and redeem souls. But at the same point, chapter earlier in Matthew 8, we just read of one of the many, many miracles of Christ while he was here on earth. In verse 14, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And that's the sign of the true Messiah. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. We esteem him not. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see both physical and spiritual healing happening as a sign of the one who would be the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And something that's important to us to remember is that though God ultimately is the divine physician, it's not a universal promise that if you have faith in Christ, you will walk a a, a completely healthy life. James Montgomery Boyce says, This verse has played an important but unwarranted role in some systems of theology that stress what is called healing the atonement. Meaning that if we have been saved from the sin by Christ, we have been healed or have a right to be healed of any physical affliction too. This is bad theology because it is simply not true that those who have been forgiven for sin are spared or have the right to be spared all diseases. Believers do get sick and many passages teach that God has his purpose in the sicknesses. But there are teachings that say, if you know Christ is Savior, you should never get sick. And it all sort of ties into a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. But yet you see Paul, you know, praising God that Epaphroditus didn't die on him. In Philippians. Or, you know, he tells someone else, you know, have a little wine with your dinner, with your food. You know, it'll be good for your stomach. Believers. Sick. And I think this belittles people who struggle through major ailments and illnesses on this side of eternity. I know that even in our own body, there are those that are, that are going through cancer. What is that? That, that? To simply say, you got faith in Christ, snap out of it, you'll, you'll heal. That, that's ridiculous. It's not biblical. And it ruins people's lives. And so we know that this isn't a promise, but rather it's a testimony. It's a testimony. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. When you're healed, it's ultimately God who healed you. When you're healthy, praise God. It's God who's giving you your health that you have right now. And when you're not being healed, 
That is the hard route to walk. That is the harder road to go down. But there, it is to rest in the purposes of God that he is using this for his glory and for my good and somehow that this will all work for the greater plan of who God is and the greater plan of who I am as a child of God. But ultimately, we know that as believers, you will experience glorious physical healing because you'll have a brand new body at the resurrection. So that time will come. So the first thing that David does here when he praises God is that he stresses home the major, major point. My sins have been forgiven. Then he goes to the point of healing. Now he comes to the third reason. And the third reason for us to remember why we worship God. He redeems your life from the pit. Redeems. Makes a claim. Buys back. Purchases the freedom of a person. In a pit, basically the abode of the dead. A pit of corruption. And so what is being expressed here, what's being communicated in this uh, verse here is that it means from going from spiritual death to spiritual life. He redeems your life from the pit. You were dead in the abode of the dead, and now, because you have experienced forgiveness, you are now alive. It's really the whole of John chapter 3. It's the whole exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus in this late night as they're talking. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. How? How can I be born again? Right? A spiritual birth. New life. Spiritual rebirth. People use a lot of analogies for us to try to understand it. You know, there's the caterpillar to the butterfly. You know, dies, butterfly. Um, one thing that I liked was uh, someone had this poster of this bronze statue of someone in great strain as they are pushing the bronze off of themselves and they themselves are made out of crystal. And so they're pushing all the bronze off and they're being made into this new creation in Christ as they force this bronze down. And for us, it's symbolizing the baptism. You're dead in your old life and when you come up, you have new life. You have spiritual life now as a follower of Christ. And there are so many verses that speak of this. So many verses. Isaiah 38, 17 Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. The imagery there, God taking your sins behind his back. And as a result, his life has been delivered from the pit of destruction. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. True life. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.21 For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. He's talking about that spiritual life that we are given as believers in Jesus. And I could go on. The verses are bounding as it pertains to that. And now he gets to the fourth reason. The fourth reason to remember why we worship God. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He crowns you. Imagine the scene. He adorns you. You are a child of God. He places a crown of steadfast love and mercy on each of your heads. Steadfast love, it's the Hebrew term hesed. An enduring, never-ceasing, volitional, committal, covenantal love. That's what God crowns you when you have come to know Him as your Lord and Savior. That is the type of love. It's the love where you see evidence in our culture, I think, when you see marriages that go 40, 50, 30. There's a covenant there that isn't going to be broken, no matter how difficult it might get. But that's just a small picture, a small reflection of the kind of love that we are crowned with as those, as those who know Christ. And when we say mercy, it's compassion. It's having compassion on someone who is in desperate need. And so it says here that God crowned you with not only covenantal love, but also mercy. He had mercy on you. And I shared this illustration before, so I'll abbreviate it, but I think it so captures the essence of what compassion and mercy is. You guys remember there was the climber, uh, Lincoln Hall, who was climbing up Mount Everest. 
and it was supposed to be the adventure of adventures for him. And for most people, it's sort of the thrill of thrills if you're into that sort of thing. And so he gets to the top of Mount Everest with his expedition, with his big group, and now it's time for the descent. Now as they begin the descent, Lincoln Hall starts to get gravely ill. The, the altitude, everything starts messing with him, gets so ill that his expedition team opts to abandon him on the side of Mount Everest. So imagine yourself at 28,000 feet, having just been abandoned by your team, and basically you're left to fend for yourself. Fend is, is an understatement. When his team got down to the summit, they declared him dead already. They just wrote it into the book, ledger, whatever. He's dead. Now, amazingly, by the grace of God, the next day, another man, Dan Mazur, and two of his clients are two hours from the top of Mount Everest. And they look over, and they see someone. They see a man on a ledge without gloves, hat, oxygen bottle, or a sleeping bag. Sitting on a ledge that's two feet by two feet. If he falls off one side, he drops 8,000 feet. If he falls off the other, he drops 6,000 feet. He had been up there the whole night on this little ledge. Now, Dan Mazur has a question for himself. I got paying clients. Everyone knows the rule of the games. When you climb up Mount Everest, you may not come down. That just goes with the territory. So what's he going to do? Dan Mazur had mercy and compassion on Lincoln Hall. Because what they did was they abandoned their own ascent, being so close to this great triumph of human accomplishment, and then they spent several hours getting um, Lincoln Hall off this two-foot-by-two-foot ledge, and then taking him back down to the summit, getting him treated, all the while knowing that they themselves will never make it to the top. That's mercy. That's compassion. That's being moved to... Move to compassion. Move to action because of someone's desperate need. And to think that Lincoln Hall was in a better spot than you and me prior to salvation. The ledge that we were sitting on was far, far smaller. The height that we were stuck on was far, far higher. But to think that God crowned you with steadfast love and compassion and mercy. A word picture to help us understand what it means when you were crowned with mercy. And this is a fundamental attribute of who God is. In Exodus 34, 6, we have a self-disclosure, a self-attestation of the character of God by God himself. And this is what God chooses to say about himself. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is saying that about himself. And that same phrase finds itself 11 different times in the Old Testament. When God is describing himself, when others are describing the character of God. It's in Joel, it's in the Psalms. We see it time and time again. And the New Testament is no different. When Jesus heals the leper in Mark chapter 1, he had compassion. He was moved to pity on him. Every time... Uh, Jesus taught. It seemed like it was an occasion for healing. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You think of like John chapter 8 when the woman was caught in adultery and there he had all these men ready to stone her. And Jesus, being God, knew so well how you walk through the law and how mercy triumphs over the law. And how at the end of it, Jesus said, Go, your sins have been forgiven. Who's condemning you? Go. That's what you've been crowned with. That's what I've been crowned with as a result of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now the fifth reason, David goes on. Fifth reason to remember why we worship God. Why we are to ascribe ultimate worth to Him. Why we are to make the time to seek Him privately, to seek Him corporately. He's the source of our satisfaction. He who satisfies you with good, your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
satisfies you with good. Psalm 63.5 My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 65.4 Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Now, they're sort of bookends. You start with having your sins forgiven, you're going to be satisfied. Because ultimately, that's the biggest hindrance to having satisfaction. If your guilt's still on you, you can try everything you want, but you will not find satisfaction. I remember years ago playing in a softball league, and for some reason the statement just stuck with me. But we're playing softball, and this guy's a lawyer, and something about buying stuff, and and he says, yeah, Anthony, well, maybe I can't buy happiness, but I can sure rent the explicit, um, I, could, I could rent it. But he said it in a much vulgar way. And the thing was, he realized, I can't have real happiness, but I'm going to rent it, I'm going to scrape, I'm going to claw, I'm going to do everything I can to at least have the semblance of it in my life. And I think that that's what we find happening. People are looking for satisfaction. People are looking for something that satisfies you. I mean, the Rolling Stones are our prophets. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. But I've tried, but I've tried, but I've tried. I can't get no satisfaction. Snickers says it can satisfy you. You know, and there's something called affluenza. You and I live in the richest civilization in the history of the world. You and me, by, living, by being in this, in the top 5% of the richest people today on earth. That satisfaction eludes. Tom Brady gave an interview several years ago on 60 Minutes. And um, Tom Brady shared, you know, he's got the wife, he's got the fame, he's got the money. And he confided, he's like, you know, but there's something missing. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is exactly, but I just get the sense that this isn't all that it's supposed to be. That there's something else that's supposed to be a part of my life and I don't know what it is. And then it was telling, because later in the interview, they asked him, so which of your Super Bowl uh, victories is your favorite? And I thought this captured it so well. He said, the next one. The next one. Boris Becker, I uh, played some tennis, and Boris Becker was, was you know, this incredible grass court tennis player. At 17, he won Wimbledon. Next year, he comes back, he wins it again. And Boris Becker was saying, here I was, I won Wimbledon. I have everything you could think you possibly want, and I had to do everything I possibly could to keep myself from committing suicide. But you would think I had it all. And in fact, this year's Resolve Conference is all about that. It's this mad dash to the top, and when you get to the top, you open the door, and it's just empty. The whole conference is going to be on that topic. Here's how Spurgeon put it. Many a worldling is satiated but not one is satisfied. Because at the end of the day, to be satisfied, it depends on what the content is of what you're trying to satisfy yourself with. And in this case, we read that God satisfies you with good. He satisfies you with good. Now why is that? Because God himself is good. So if it's God who is satisfying you, you will be satisfied because you're being satisfied with something that is good. Mark chapter 10, 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. And so, having come to Christ, having experienced his forgiveness, having experienced redemption, you can experience true satisfaction true satisfaction. Now, Paul knew this. Paul understood this. But yet we have three letters from him that he wrote from prison. And yet, uh, Mark read it this morning. I have learned to be content in all things. With a lot, with a little, with money, no money, with chains on my ankles, no chains on my ankles, I've learned the key of being content. Christ. Christ. To die is gain, to live is Christ. That's the same for us. Am I there? Heck no. I'm embarrassed at the things that will cause me to have my satisfaction rattled. 
But that's why we have that whole next section there in Philippians in 3, 12 to 17, where I press on towards the goal of the upward call that I have in Christ Jesus. I press on. And Paul's writing to believers. And he says, you know, you know, if you're mature, you'll think like me. And if you're not, in due time, you will. Go imitate someone who's more mature than you. Find someone. But true satisfaction can't come apart from God. Because he alone is good. And when he satisfies you, any situation you're in will be satisfying. Despite whether it's trying, despite whether it's good, despite whether it's a joy or a trial. Because you've been satisfied by God. I read this, uh, heard this thing by Wayne Mack. And um, in terms of living and in terms of being satisfied, one of the things he said is, is uh, that it's not your circumstances in your life that need to change. And he's talking to Christians. He said, but you need to change on how you view your circumstances. It's not the if only what if game, then I could be satisfied. It's no, you are satisfied because of what you have in Christ. You have to start with that and look at everything in your life through that lens. Because otherwise, you'll never be satisfied. It will always be the what if, if only. And you think about it. I was single. I want to get married. I get married. I realize it's not perfect. I have kids. I realize my kids aren't perfect. I'm still not perfect. And we can just keep finding ourselves going and going and looking for something that will bring us satisfaction. But unless we learn that our satisfaction is in Christ, because He alone is good, it may prove elusive to you. So we have satisfaction. And what's the result of the satisfaction here? He says this, My youth is renewed like the eagle. My youth is renewed like the eagle, David is saying. Now the eagle is a sign of longevity, vitality, power, elegance. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not be faint. That's what happens to us as believers who know Christ. We'll continue. We'll persevere. God will sustain us. God will give us the grace that we need. He'll renew our youth like the eagles. And the basis of all of that, like I said earlier, it's salvation. It's forgiveness of sins. When you walk down through that list, then you can know the true satisfaction because we know salvation. We know forgiveness of sins. So why do we worship God? David exhorts us. I'm giving you five jewels here. Spurgeon says again, David selects a few of the choicest pearls from the casket of divine love, threads them on the string of memory, and hangs them about the neck of gratitude. Choicest pearls in our case. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, love and mercy, satisfaction. Remember the guy that buys the field, right? And gets the treasure. You have it. You open it. This is what's in it. This is the treasure. This is what the man sold everything he had for and went after. This is what the man sold everything he had to go get this pearl of great value. Now, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know Christ, I pray that, that these truths would ring in your heart. That you would realize that anything that you've understood to be riches to this point is but fake. Are a bunch of cubic zirconias in a spiritual sense. And true riches cannot be bought, cannot be earned, cannot be rented, but can be given as a free gift if you truly realize the state that you're in, that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. So David was exhorting himself, preaching to himself, reminding himself of the riches he had in Christ. And it's a reminder for us to do the same. It's a reminder for us to meditate on what we have in Christ Jesus because of what he has done for us. They are yours. Live from them. From the place that 
God has secured for us because of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the imperfect, sinful men that you used to reveal your glory, to reveal your character, to reveal the riches of salvation to us through the pages of Scripture. I pray, Father God, that each of us in this room would come to the place, come to the point where we live from these riches, where we live from these truths, and that we might truly live a life satisfied in Christ because of all that you have accomplished through him on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.